This morning we talk about holiness, in particular the call of scripture, be holy, says God, as, as I am holy. And I wonder, I hope that I might be able to impress upon everybody's mind and heart this morning how important the theme of holiness is, the holiness of God in particular. If somebody were to ask me, what is the greatest problem with the world, um, including the church, the people of God, I would be inclined, you know, your mind might run off to a lot of different areas, but I would be inclined to settle for this one concept, this one word, holy. We've lost a sense, understanding and appreciation of holiness in particular, and of course where it all begins, the holiness of God. And so we think of, first of all, the Old Testament. I guess what's a, what would be really a foundational statement, particularly when we understand the context, Leviticus chapter 11, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. The elect nation of Israel brought out from bondage in Egypt by God. Deliverance, separation, holiness in order that they would be a separate people serving God. But this same theme continues really throughout the history of the people of God. In the New Testament, for example, First Peter, notice Peter's language here in chapter 1, verses 14 and 16. As obedient children addressing Christians, of course, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy, says God. And I want to suggest to you, I guess to clear the way a little bit, um, because I think in the world generally there is, a, even among Christians I suspect, a, a bit of a misconception about this, this idea of being holy, holiness. A, a common mis- misconception I would describe as holiness equals moral and ritual purity or perfection. And so when I'm called to be holy, what constitutes being holy is being unblemished in my morality and in my obedience to God, if you will. And so the catch with that, I mean, you've got, you see some caricatures here. I've just selected a couple of uh, cartoons that address this thing. The idea of one person being holier than other people. He comes Mr. Holier Than Thou. Or I have my doubts about Brother Thomas. You'll notice he's got his, he's got his little halo there, but there's something sus about his halo. There's something, there's a bit of pretense involved in that. And I want to suggest to you that this misconception, this misunderstanding of holiness, uh, lends to the mistake of making comparisons leading into judgmentalism. Um, that is, 
making judgments about who's worthy and who's not worthy, who is superior and who is inferior. And of course, the harsh reality of this, we know, and and scripture goes to great lengths to impress upon us this idea that we cannot rely upon our own performance in order to be right with God. Um, Legalism, works righteousness and such terms describe that sort of way of thinking. Though that way of thinking seems to be very seductive for us as human beings and and even, again, among, among Christians. And of course, the impossibility of that leads to, well, it can lead in one of two directions, either denial or hypocrisy. I become blind to my own faults because I can't admit that I have faults because that would mean I'm not, I'm not rightly aligned with God and so I'm not going to go there. So I pretend I'll fool myself into thinking that I am righteous. And I guess this is exemplified by many of the Pharisees that we read of uh, in the New Testament scriptures, with, uh, particularly in their engagement with, uh, with Jesus, denial and hypocrisy. And the other extreme, of course, it can lead some to despair. What's the point? It's all too hard. It's impossible. And so I walk away. I turn my back on even the vague hope of being holy, perhaps even turning my back on God himself. And the final category there, reduction of God, which I think is a particular, uh, a particularly challenging and prevalent phenomenon today, again in the world generally, but including and perhaps even especially in the church among the people of God, where God is reduced. Um, you might think of words like buddyism. God is my buddy. God is my friend. God is on your side, our side, but God's not our buddy. He's not our friend. Um, I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis as he is so often uncannily able to capture these important theological themes in describing Aslan, the lion. And there was some sort of uh, sentiment of, of uh, um, um, you know, the, the, the Aslan, the lion, God is no pussycat. He is dangerous. He's good, but he's dangerous. And again, maintaining that proper sense of God's holiness. I think is what all of humanity needs more perhaps today than we ever had. What then is holiness? Well, we can resort to simple definitions and that's a good place to begin in the Old Testament. Kodosh, sacred, holy. And the term used in the New Testament, hagios, set apart by or for. God and his purposes, his service to be holy, sacred. Um, properly, it, can, it conveys the idea of being different or unlike, unique, if you will. The sense of otherness. When we think of God's otherness, we usually use words like transcendence. God transcends, God is beyond and above other than everything else. 
For the believer, in these terms are from strong, for the believer, hagios means likeness of nature with the Lord because we are different from the world. And so we get words like holy, sacred, but also English words that we're familiar with that are taken from the same Greek root, saint and sanctify. Saint and sanctify, set apart, marked apart from the mundane, the ordinary, unique. And we get a bit of a picture of this, I think, from a number of contexts. First in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3, for example, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Six days of work, seventh day was made special, holy, set apart, different from the other days because on that seventh day God rested from his creative endeavours. Exodus chapter 3, do not come any closer, God said Moses as he approaches the, the burning bush or the bush that wouldn't burn, if you will. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And here we get this movement, we see this idea of, of, of it's not just separate and apart, it's separate and apart as it's associated with God's presence. Where God is, where God who is holy, that makes everything that surrounds holy. First Timothy chapter 6, the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, and you'll notice the word holy is not used here, but the concept of holiness, God's holiness, God's specialness, God's separateness, God's otherness, is all over this statement from Paul. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honour and might forever. Amen. And of course when we think of holiness, it would be difficult not to think back to the law of Moses, in particular the codes of holiness, uh, evidence for example throughout the book of Leviticus, where it talks of sacrifices and offerings of categories of clean and unclean. And I want to hasten to emphasise that these are not, were not and are not hoops that were to be jumped through to become holy but rather they were to serve to impress with the reality and highlight the holiness of God. God's dwelling place, the temple. God's holiness is witnessed by the division of spaces between the outer court and the holy of holies. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard this or made this observation perhaps yourself, but but the way that the temple complex was laid out was very stratified, um, for example, and this is an illustration of Herod's temple, so this was the temple complex as Jesus knew it when he walked the earth. And you'll notice the outer court, you've got the portico, and it's of interest to us as Christians because this is where the early church in Jerusalem met in their assemblies, in this public area protected from the elements. You'll notice the court 
of the Gentiles, the outer court area. Uh, and you'll notice a little barrier. It's interesting down in the bottom right hand corner, it's a bit pandemic, pandemic of, of me, I know, but this sort of thing worries me. That's quite wrong. The, the, the arrow going beyond that little fence, that little barrier, it shouldn't go beyond that. Because as Josephus tells us, and as archaeologists have discovered recently, there was a sign strategically placed all around that barrier advising, warning Gentiles, if you step beyond this mark, the forfeit of your life is your fault. In other words, you enter not just at your own risk, you enter and you will die. That was the promise. Those who were allowed to pass that barrier were the Israelites. But even that was segregated, divided socially. You've noticed it's the court of the women. And then there's the court of Israel, the males of Israel, were able to go into that, that bit closer to the temple. And then there's the priest's court. Now what's the image that's being presented here? And we, call, we know with the temple itself, was divided. There is the holy place separated from the holy of holies. The holy place exclusively was open to the priests that were ministering in the temple. Notice the gold. Can you imagine if you stepped with the privilege of being a priest, you step inside that building and the sensual assault visually, the smelling with the incense, everything, everything about this yells loudly. The average Jew wasn't privileged, of course, not being a priest, wasn't privileged. But every time that door was cracked, and I suspect that every time they would look at certain times of the day, you'll notice the windows set high there. That's not just letting light in, that's letting light out. Can you imagine what a gold-lined room the reflective power of that would be. You hear in ancient writers, historians like Josephus that describe it, as you approached Jerusalem in those days, it was a magnificent sight, that proverbial light on the hill, and maybe this is what Jesus was alluding to with that metaphor. That light on the hill, it was like a beacon Here is the house of God. Here is the presence of God himself. And of course the Holy of Holies, exclusively for the high priest, not just any old priest, only the high priest, and only on one day of the year, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, where sacrifice was was made on the behalf of the people. That was where we had the context of the scapegoat, etc., Once a year, one person only could enter into the very presence of God where the Ark of the Covenant was located. You get that sense of progressive separation. The Gentiles, the Israelites, the women, the men, the priests, the high priest. 
I want to suggest to you that all of that points to and emphasises this simple reality. God is holy. God is holy. Now, there are a couple of contexts in the scriptures that describe the throne scene, the throne of God. And I'd like to really spend most of our lesson this morning around these two narratives. And I want to begin, it's almost like saying in a sense, beginning at the end, if you will, the Apostle John's description of the majesty of God, the holiness of God in Revelation chapter 4. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated in them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and pearls of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing and these were the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the centre, around the throne, were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. And the first living creature was like a lion and the second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wing. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, 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 Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. This is one artist's attempt to capture something of the majesty of that vision that John describes. And I want you to notice that as John describes the scene, he connects the holiness of God with the fact that he is creator, creator and sustainer of all things. That's the source of God's holiness. It's not just about moral excellence or rightness in any form or fashion. All of that's included, but it's much bigger than that. It is derived because of who God is as creator. The other image, a little bit earlier in history, is Isaiah the prophet. So let's put this around... I think about 760, 750 BC, that sort of ballpark. John was describing God. Tradition has it 
in prison on the Isle of Patmos somewhere in the 90s AD. So this is quite a bit earlier, but we notice that, that the image described different in some sense, but fundamentally, really, it's the same, just a different way of grappling to try and describe the glory, the overwhelming glory of God and his holiness. And so he begins, uh, Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Before we proceed with his description, I want you to notice one thing. Isaiah gives us the historical context and timing of this vision that he's received. In the year that King Uzziah died, and I think that's significant and I think it's really important for us to understand. John, you'll remember, writing from Patmos, many, most even, uh, would interpret the book of Revelation as a means of trying to encourage Christians who are facing severe persecution. Whatever other nuances people tend to put on the book of Revelation, that seems to be the common denominator, the one that, the theme that most would agree with. John is writing, or Jesus is writing to his bride, to his church, through the Apostle John, to encourage them to keep on keeping on in the face of very severe persecution, hard, hard times. And I want you to notice that really the same thing is happening here some 800 plus years earlier, this time expressed through and in the time of Isaiah. You see, and I'm going to read uh, at length, I'm going to read through quickly, but I, I think it's important for us to get the picture. What does that mean in the year that King Uzziah died, the king of Judah at the time, What does that mean? Say what? Well, in chapter 26, we read that all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old. This is from 2 Kings, sorry. And made him king in place of his father, Amaziah. And he was the one who rebuilt Elath and restored it to Judah after Amaziah rested with his ancestors. So we notice what the divine account gives regarding the man Uzziah and his, and his reign. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. 52 years. That's a long reign. His mother's name was Jechaliah and she was from Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord just as his father Amaziah had done. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. He went to war against the Philistines and broke down the walls of Gath, Jabna and Ashdod. He then rebuilt towns near Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. He God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabs who lived in Gerbal and against the Maonites. The Ammonites brought tribute to Uzziah. And his fame spread as far as the border of Egypt because he had become very powerful. Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate, at the valley gate and at the angle of the wall, and he fortified them. He also built towers in the wilderness and dug many cisterns because he had much livestock in the foothills and in the plain. He had people working his fields and vineyards in the hills and in the fertile lands, for he loved the soil. 
Uzziah had a well-trained army ready to go out by divisions according to the numbers as mustered by Jael, the secretary, and Messiah, the officer who under the direction of Hananiah, one of the royal officials. The total number of family leaders over the fighting men was 2,600. Under their command was an army of 307,500 men trained for war, a powerful force to support the king against his enemies. Uzziah provided shields, spears, helmets, coats of armour, bows and sling stones for the entire army. In Jerusalem he made devices invented for use on the towers and on the corner defences so that soldiers could shoot arrows and hurl large stones from the walls. His fame spread far and wide for he was greatly helped until he became powerful. Now there's a hiccup for Uzziah. After Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord, his God, and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Azariah, the priest with 80 other courageous priests of the Lord, followed him in. They confronted King Uzziah and said, It's not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who have been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and you will not be honoured by the Lord God. Uzziah, who had a censer in his hand ready to burn incense, became angry. And while he was raging at the priests in their presence before the incense altar in the, te- in the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. When Azariah, the chief priest, and all the other priests looked at him, they saw that he had leprosy on his forehead, so they hurried him out. Indeed, he himself was eager to leave because the Lord had afflicted him. King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. He lived in a separate house, leprous and banned from the temple of the Lord. Jotham, his son, had charge of the the palace and governed the people of the land. The other events of Uzziah's reign from beginning to end are recorded in the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. Uzziah rested with his ancestors and was buried near them in a cemetery that belonged to the kings. For people said he had leprosy. And Jotham, his son, succeeded him as king. And it's interesting, just a snippet of of Jotham's reign. Jotham was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. His mother's name was Jerusha, daughter of Zadok. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Notice, just as his father Uzziah had done, but unlike him, he did not enter the temple of the Lord. The people, however, continued their corrupt practices. Now let's piece this together. Uzziah prospered greatly as king of Judah. And of course Judah, the people, prospered along with Uzziah. And with the notable exception of this prideful act in seeking to burn the incense in the temple, he was a godly man. And isn't it interesting how often it is godly people who, who are very frail, blemished. You think of David, for example. When we think of David, most people think of the incident with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. But they were reversals in the context of a broader life of Humility and faithfulness and, and service to God. You get the sense that Isaiah was kind of like, and in his reign, very reminiscent of David. 
While he was faithful, God blessed him and the nation was blessed accordingly. Such a person reigned for 52 years. 52 years is an extraordinarily long reign. And it brings to the land, to the people, not just prosperity, but peace. All that talk about the armies and the well-fortified cities, etc. What that says to a population is that we were safe. Uzziah, God through Isaiah, blessed us, prospered us and kept us safe. But that's all changing. Uzziah is dead. He died around 740 to 735 BC after a relatively stable and prosperous 52-year reign. The Assyrians will remember conquered Israel, the northern kingdom, Judah, the southern kingdom, Israel, the northern kingdom, uh, in 722 BC. In other words, on the world stage, at least in this part of the world, even though we've enjoyed prosperity as the people of God and relative safety under the rule of Uzziah, now Uzziah's died. And you know what? We know of this dark cloud that's been gathering on the horizon for quite some time in the form of the Assyrians and their aspiration to build empire. What's going to happen? What lies ahead? Well, we know Jotham, largely no doubt because of Uzziah's good influence, was a godly king. And he and Israel continued, or Judah, sorry, continued to enjoy that protection for at least another 16 years. But from that point, moving forward, we have the crisis of King Hezekiah, we might remember, uh, who was held up and encouraged by the prophet Isaiah, even while Sennacherib stood knocking at the door of Jerusalem, scoffing at Hezekiah because of his resolve to be faithful and trust in God rather than caving in to the Assyrians. Troubling times, uncertain times, fearful times. My point is this. It was at this point in time when God consecrates Isaiah, commissions Isaiah, and shares this vision of his holiness. This is why, in understanding that, I say it's so important for us today as the people of God to lay hold of, to retain, if we've even let it go, this understanding and appreciation of the holiness of God. Because we face uncertain times, let's face it. The world, is, in the West at least, has gone... Crazy. And we might justifiably start to think, what is going on? God is still on his throne. God is still the creator God, the holy God. Though we live in uncertain times, 
we can know with confidence who's really in charge. The Lord God Almighty who is holy, holy, holy. Back to Isaiah 6 and Isaiah's commission. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Isaiah continues, Woe to me! Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among the people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. He said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving, make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. A couple of quick observations. Following on from encountering, being confronted with the majesty of God, the holiness of God, notice Isaiah's response, woe to me. And I want to suggest to you that is the only appropriate response on the part of the creature in relation to the creator. And I want to challenge each one of us this morning with the question that we might ask ourselves. When I contemplate God, Do I have a sense of awe? Do I have a sense of my smallness in the presence of God? Even, yes, even my uncleanness in the presence of God. I want to suggest to you, if we're not coming from that base in our relationship with God, it's certainly going to go askew somewhere and more than likely to end up, rather than me serving God, God serving me in some fashion. It has to begin with the proper understanding and appreciation of God's holiness, of God's absolute otherness. But notice where this leads I heard the voice of the Lord saying, who shall I send? Who will go for us? 
Isaiah responds, here am I, send me. You remember that fundamental statement from God that we began this lesson with? Be holy. There's the call. Be holy because I am holy. We're seeing this process played out even in the commission of Isaiah. Encountering God's holiness. Being forced, being confronted with our creatureliness. And being called to come up, to step up. You'll notice the means by which he can approach God. It's God that provides the way, the forgiveness in the form, in this case, the coal, the live coal that touched his lips, that purified him, not of his initiative, but rather the doing of God, the will of God, in order that we could join with God. Be holy. It's God's desire for us. It's God's purpose for us. Be holy because I am holy. God is holy, set apart, essentially and necessarily so, as the creator is holy other than his creation. Humanity is called to image God. Remember, we are made uniquely in the image of God. But of course, the biblical narrative informs us exactly what went wrong. Though we were made in the image of God, we rejected God. God responds in the incarnation, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, as the Apostle John, uh, Paul describes him, the perfect image of God. And we are called to discipleship. We are called to follow Christ, to become like Christ. Who will go for us? Sorry, mate. (laughs) Who will go for us? Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. It's the same invitation. Follow. Follow me. And so... The Imago Dei, fancy Latin term for the image of God in which we were originally created, which has become corrupted, spoiled through sin. We are called to be restored to where we always ought to have been in the first place through Christ. And for this reason I want to suggest to you that the Apostle John, immediately following on from his description of the throne scene and God on his throne continues to speak of the Lamb of God. We'll just quickly read the narrative, familiar to everybody, I'm sure. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels. So we've seen God. There's God on his throne. Holy, holy, holy. And now, John looks, hears the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice were saying, worthy is the lamb, the lamb who was slain, 
to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, to him who sits on the throne, Lord God Almighty, and his Son, the Lamb, be praise and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped him. God is essentially holy because God is creator. But God is also holy. Because if, if I can put it this way, simply because of love. Humanity called back into relationship with God, who we know as a triune God, who is love as revealed in the incarnation. God reaches out through his son, offering atonement, forgiveness, reconciliation. That living coal, remember. Which leads in turn to partnering with God in his work of redemption, Summarised by Jesus as loving God and loving your neighbour. Love sets God and his people apart. God is love, remember. John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4. John 14, Jesus, John 13, sorry, Jesus talks about the way his disciples could be identified. They will know you by the love you have for one another. Love, whether we talk about God, whether we talk about the people of God, love is what makes us holy, is what sets us apart from the rest. And of course, in conclusion, if we haven't already got it, Our holiness, the holiness which we are called to, is derivative. Be holy because I am holy, says God. And the way I think is a helpful uh, illustration, um, Tim Mackey, among other theologians, uh, used this illustration to describe the, the theme, and this is the thought I want to leave us with this morning. God is like the sun. Unimaginable. Power, energy. We are called to be, in a sense, like the moon, which shines, and in a sense, in its own sense, in its own context, is glorious. But you'll notice that that glory is derived from the sun. The call to us to be holy is not the call to performance or perfection or any such thing. It's the call to relationship with God. It's the call to love as God loves. And in loving as God loves, we honour the creator, we become like the creator.